Welcome to the first episode of Progcast, a podcast for progressives and free thinkers. I'm Tammy Jackson. You may know me as the chairperson of Progress SA, a liberal non-profit organization promoting freedom at South African universities. I'm Scott Roberts, and I'm also a member of Progress SA. Thanks for listening to our show. In this short podcast series, we're going to be talking about dangerous ideas. Not only ideas that people want to censor because they think they pose a danger to society, but also ideas that put scholars at risk because those in power don't like them. In essence, this is a podcast about academic freedom. What is academic freedom? Should scholars be allowed to think, write and teach about whatever they like? If there should be restrictions on academic freedom, how do we figure out where these should be placed? We're going to be exploring these questions over the course of the series. In today's episode, Scott and I will be talking a bit about why Progress Essay cares about academic freedom, why we took up the fight for academic freedom at South African universities. We're going to tell you the story of what's been happening at the University of Cape Town for the past two years and why we got involved. In the rest of the episodes in the series, We'll be chatting to a number of guests, each with a different perspective on academic freedom. Before we get onto that, I just want to mention our sponsor, the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. They're an amazing NGO that's always ready to step up and support liberal activists in South Africa. We really appreciate all the amazing work that they do. Also, before Twitter radicals start frothing at the mouth before even listening to this show, we are not, and we never have been, funded by the Koch brothers. Okay, so let's get to it. Now, one of my gripes about the South African media at the moment is that they take social media far too seriously. And it seems that like what Tani Ivan from Potchefstroom has to say about Julius Malema on her Twitter feed has now become newsworthy content. But, you know, like they say, if you can't beat them, join them. So I'm going to read to you a Facebook post from one of our most vociferous critics online. She's a woman that we know from the Fallers movement. Her name is Timberlichle Nkayana. And maybe I should also add that she's been published on the Huffington Post and a number of other high-profile online publications. So she's quite a commentator. Anyway, she writes, This progress nonsense group that we are, that are crying about wanting academic freedom and carte blanche to teach trash because that's what things are currently, are going to cry when we use that very carte blanche and academic freedom to teach their kids solely decolonial theories and frameworks when we are academics. Because, like it or not, and this part is in all caps, we are coming for academia, babes. We are coming for all of you, and your kids are going to learn. And there are five exclamation marks at the end of that sentence. Tammy, what do you think of this commentary? You see, Scott, no one who takes the idea of academic freedom seriously could ever suggest that. And I'm quoting from the Facebook post here, that you could use academic freedom to teach kids solely decolonial theories and frameworks. Well, that's absurd. As we'll see over the course of this podcast series, academic freedom at a very basic level means that scholars should be free to think and teach the ideas that they personally think are valuable, and other scholars in return are free to criticize those ideas. Since we have many different kinds of people in our society and many different kinds of ideas, 
are held in good faith by those different people, academic freedom inevitably results in diversity of thought at a university. And I think it's quite relevant that I quote Colin Douglas, who was the former SRC president of UCT many, many years ago. He says, Much of liberalism's future will depend on the future of academic freedom. Essentially, what this means is that it's quite important to re-establish campuses as beacons of critical thought, free debate, innovation, and individual agency. You see, if you support academic freedom, even if you don't think decolonial theory has much going for it, or maybe even if it's really a bad set of ideas, you'll still defend other scholars' rights to defend decolonial theory and even to teach it. Of course, that freedom doesn't make them immune from criticism. Anyone who expresses an idea at a university must be prepared to have that idea rebutted and even shot down. The point is there must be a space in which bad ideas can be freely expressed. Tammy, I think maybe it'll be useful for our listeners for us to explain the context in which Ms. Nkayana wrote this post in the first place. In February of last year, we became aware of moves that were underway at UCT to forcibly change curricula at the university. Now, the university set up a group called the Curriculum Change Framework Group or the Curriculum Change Working Group, and they drafted a document called the Curriculum Change Framework. And this document was meant to be And actually, maybe let me quote from the document as to what its purpose was. It was supposed to be a detailed proposal for curriculum change as a fundamental contribution to building a new identity for the University of Cape Town. This document is still available on the UCT website if you're curious to read it. One of the first things you'll notice about the document when you do read it is that it's actually very difficult to read. Now, there are a lot of long, complicated sentences that don't seem to make much sense at all. And there's also a lot of post-colonial theoretical jargon. Now, let me just give you a taste of how this document reads. Here's an excerpt from it. It is respect, it is with respect to the what and how of educational knowledge production and enactment that this framework considers how curricula shape and regulate what can be done and who can do it. The regulative discourse understood as the dominant social values, social relations, and inherent social structures within a given social context, which regulate forms of social practice, provides the internal logic for UCT's dominant epistemic and pedagogic discourse and traditions. Now, I just want to be clear that it's not a case of me having quoted an excerpt from the document completely out of context, and that's why it sounds silly. Because the rest of the document reads in a very similar way. And in actual fact, a scholar of the philosophy of language told me personally that it took him three days to get through the document and to try and make sense of it. And it's not that long. It's about 70 pages. So it's almost impossible to understand what the claims they were trying to make were. And this really isn't a very useful thing for a document that is supposed to overhaul the curricula of an entire university. The other problem is that there's really a concern that where you try to obscure meaning in a policy document that that prohibits those from prohibits people who are going to be affected by that policy from contributing to the creation of the policy in the first place and they're the ones who should have the right to comment and to contribute what i think was more concerning to me though and i think this is the reason why progress essay entered the fight is that the one thing that could be extracted from the document is that 
there was clearly a desire to label certain kinds of ideas as colonial and to ensure that they would have no place in a decolonized university. For example, there is a suggestion that René Descartes' famous statement, I think, therefore I am, is a statement of coloniality of being. A philosophy professor then will not be free to teach Descartes in a decolonized university. Also, the document does not limit its scope to the humanities faculty. There would, for example, be a risk that a biology lecturer would not be free to teach Darwin's evolutionary theory, even though it is the most plausible explanation for things we notice about the natural world. This is because Darwin, as a white, British, and presumably heterosexual and upper-class man, is a symbol of the power relations that decolonization wants to overthrow. The most concerning thing about the document was its suggestion that a color bar should be introduced to prevent lecturers of the supposed wrong race from being in charge of curricula. One section of the document provides a platform for a small group of students studying at Heading Campus, whose views are then discussed sympathetically. The document then states, Students felt that while white academics had expertise in specific areas, they could not claim authority on blackness, black pain, African ideology, course material and productions, or as overseers of curriculum. The suggestion is, of course, is that lecturing positions at certain levels or in certain disciplines should be restricted to people of a certain race. The framework document does not distance itself from this proposal. So the consequences of this thing, if it was made official university policy, would be that certain ideas wouldn't be allowed to be taught. And that's just because proponents of decolonial theory don't like those ideas. And this would mean that huge bodies of knowledge, not only in the humanities, but also in the sciences, and that's probably even more concerning, that those bodies of knowledge wouldn't be able to be taught because they are associated with the wrong race group or the wrong identity historically. Let's just think that through for a second. It would literally mean the collapse of the science faculty, perhaps the health science faculty too. You know, like what exactly is a decolonized approach to commerce? Does it mean that classical economics wouldn't be able to be taught at the University of Cape Town? If we take it to its furthest conclusion, perhaps the only departments that would be able to survive at UCT would be those in the humanities faculty in which critical race theory and post-colonial theory has already comfortably taken hold. Now, in response to these concerns, we wrote an open letter to the vice chancellor of UCT, Prof. Pakeng. And we called on her to affirm the University of Cape Town's management's position as committing themselves to academic freedom and the idea of the university as a space for open debate. And that's really a space where, where ideas from a wide variety of intellectual traditions can be discussed, as opposed to its being a place where ideological indoctrination happens. And we also asked her to affirm management's opposition to the idea of the introduction of a color bar for lecturing, as Tammy just spoke about. For those of our listeners who followed the story on social media, you'll know that what followed was a bit of a meltdown on the part of Prof. Peking and UCT's management. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about this. 
I'll just say that we were accused of being a shady political force that was sent to overthrow her, that we were funded by wealthy right-wing American donors from the Republican Party, um, that we wanted to shut down the university. Of course, none of these things are actually true. They were just detracting from the real issues. And it was only a whole two weeks later, after our open letter was signed by hundreds of academics and students and alumni, that the university actually took our argument seriously and responded to the issue itself. That issue is academic freedom. Well, actually, to be fair on the university, Scott, I personally think that the university eventually did the right thing. But also remember that they only responded after Progress essay ran an extensive campaign on the issue of academic freedom. So the university's management eventually clarified that the curriculum change framework would only be a discussion document and would not be used to inform university policy. In a statement on the 8th of March, 2019, the University of Cape Town said it was, and I quote, committed to academic freedom and freedom of expression and regards these rights as fundamental to its institutional culture. Close quote. The vice chancellor committed herself to a view that UCT cannot prescribe a standard framework for all to follow. Now, I don't want to speculate too much on whether this is genuinely the view of the university's management or whether they only took this line because so many staff, alumni and donors were expressing concern in the media. But what I will say is that there is clearly a movement within certain ideological circles to further a particular far left-wing ideology. And this movement certainly didn't die down after the university's management made its statement decommitting itself to academic freedom. We saw a number of threats to academic freedom emerging at the University of Cape Town after this statement was made. And the management of the university made no public effort to denounce them. We'll discuss those in later episodes. There have also been threats to academic freedom emerging at other universities in South Africa. South African universities are not unique, though, in their struggle to safeguard academic freedom. A worldwide non-governmental organization called Scholars at Risk analyzed over 300 serious violations of academic freedom in 56 countries in 2019 in its latest report. And these violations didn't just happen in illiberal non-democratic countries with authoritarian governments. Even universities in so-called free Western countries like the USA, UK and New Zealand had serious academic freedom violations taking place in the year 2019. Tammy, I actually just want to mention an American example from the report because for me, this example highlights why we should support academics' rights to freedom of expression and academic freedom. And that's even if we disagree with what they're saying. So in 2019, U.S. authorities prevented Omar Barghouti. He's a leader of the Boycott, Divest and Sanction, the BDS movement. They prevented him from traveling to the USA when he was scheduled to speak at a few universities and to meet with journalists and policymakers. Barghouti is a Palestinian human rights activist. He's also a Columbia University alumnus, and he's a co-founder of the BDS movement. Now, I don't support BDS at all. I believe that if BDS achieved its goal of forcing a one-state solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict, the result would be a disaster for peace and democracy in the Middle East. 
And I also don't agree with BDS's moves to enforce boycotts of Israeli scholars and universities on campuses all over the world. And they've tried to do that at UCT as well. Now, American airline staff at an airport in Israel told Barghouti that U.S. immigration officials had informed the U.S. consulate in Tel Aviv that he should be prevented from traveling to the U.S. Now, the authorities reportedly said that the ban was due to an immigration matter, despite Barghouti's valid travel documents and his valid visa. So legally, he should have been allowed to go. But it was clear that this was designed to prevent him from speaking at Columbia University, at Harvard University, and also at NYU. Well, Scott, I actually think that's a very good example because that actually forces me to ask the question, why should a government or why should the state decide what information I get to hear and whose opinions I get to hear? Why does the government have any role in deciding how I should think about a particular issue? If people were so scared about what the speaker had to say, they should have gone to the event and debated him not try to deplatform him by denying him entry into the country. But you see, the radical left and BDS are also quite guilty of deplatforming people. In 2018, Professor Mohammed Dajani, who is a Palestinian academic and peace activist that opposes BDS and promotes a two-state solution, was disinvited from a conference at Stellenbosch University. The university disinvited him after South African BDS activists demanded that he be removed from the program, claiming that he was not an authentic and genuine representative of the Palestinian people. Sadly, Stellenbosch University capitulated to these demands. The university then tried to spin the story by saying that Dajani voluntarily chose not to attend the conference. In response, Johnny said that this was completely untrue and that Stellenbosch University disinvited him out of fear that the conference would somehow be derailed. The university have yet to issue an apology or acknowledge wrongdoing in this incident. So Scott... We have a lot of work to do, both in South Africa and globally, to make sure that academic freedom is protected. And that's a good point to leave this introductory episode. Over the remaining episodes in this series, we're going to be taking a closer look at what academic freedom is, its origins, its limits, what kinds of scholarly work it does and does not protect. We'll be looking at academic freedom both from a philosophical and a legal perspective, What does the South African constitution have to say about academic freedom, for example? And is its definition philosophically sound? We'll also be discussing the ways in which academic freedom might be under threat in South Africa and what we as activists can do to protect our freedom to learn, study and teach. We'll be speaking to philosophers, public figures and policymakers, each with a different perspective on what's happening and what needs to be done. We hope that you've enjoyed this introductory episode and we hope that you'll join us for the more meaty stuff to come in the future installments. If you'd like to continue this conversation online, we're most active on Twitter where you can find us at the handle ProgressRSA. You can also find out more about Progress SA by visiting our website www.progress.org.za. Until next time, keep thinking even when it's dangerous. <laughs>